0: Welcome to our 22nd Set the Month in Motion monthly podcast and forum produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. My name is Denisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO of the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. I would like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land on which we gather, the Wadjuk people, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Today, we are talking a conversation that always takes me immediately back to my days in mining, where H&S conversations were a regular, if not hourly, occurrence. For those of you who are not in industries where H&S usually rates such a high profile, let me give you a quick snapshot on why we're having this conversation today. WA Parliament has passed the Work, Health and Safety Act 2020, or the WHS Act, in November last year. 12 years after the WA government agreed to introduce harmonised work, health and safety laws. However, the Work, Health and Safety Act will not operate until industry-specific regulations are finalised. The WA government has now said it anticipates new legislation and accompanying regulations to commence by July 2021, as in a few months' time. Although they do acknowledge this is an ambitious time frame. Once in force, the new WHS laws will replace the current Occupational Safety and Health Act, 1984, or the OSH Act, as it is often known, and those elements of a number of other acts that uh, relate to work health and safety matters. So what does this mean for my business, I hear you ask? Well, we are very lucky today to have a truly exceptional panel and probably one of our most uh, technically astute panels I think um, we've had so far. And I thank each one of you for giving up your time to talk about this really important topic today. First on our panel is Danielle McNamee, Director of Process Works. Danielle is the founder of her company Process Works and a Fremantle Chamber of Commerce board member. She has over 20 years' experience in people management and industrial relations across Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States. Danielle graduated with a Bachelor of Economics Honours degree and completed the Department of Productivity and Labor Relations graduate program. And over the last eight years, she's been responsible for providing businesses across a diverse range of industries with access to pragmatic human resource management and work health and safety management systems to ensure legal compliance and optimal employee performance. Many of you will remember Danielle was a guest on our Developing Systems for Growth podcast mid-last year, and we welcome her here again today. Danielle, can you take us through what is the new Work Health Safety Act, and what is most concerning from your perspective about the new Act?
1: Look, I think there's a number of um, changes in the Act, and it would take, you know, a a lot longer than today than to go through all of them. But um, I think the key areas are there is um, a real um, onus on, in terms of the responsibility of the business owner um, in terms of their duty of care and there's been an increase um, in the spectrum of the duty of care provisions um, which extends uh, a lot more than the previous Act, so that's very important. Um, There's a real um, increased focus on the officer Um, which is basically, which impacts a lot of um, small businesses where they have um, managers that are largely operating um, the business and they fall under the Office of Provisions, which means that they are now responsible for the duty of care. So that's very key. Um, I think um, one of the areas that Concerns me most about the Act um, is not so much the, the industrial manslaughter, which we hear a lot about, where you can go to jail. That's got a very, very you know high. You have to you have to kind of fail on many, many areas to fit into that. But it's really the category one, where if you fail a duty of care and someone dies, that you can go to jail for five years. And so that's um, my you know real concern. Um, the other real significant um, factor in the Act, I think, is that it and it's not necessarily a bad thing for businesses, but the onus um, of responsibility on people like myself, all of us today, is much greater under the 26A provisions, which basically means that for me and my clients, if um, one of my clients has a death or an injury, um, I am as liable um, if they've followed what I've said and for have done something providing wrong that advice. advice yeah. yeah okay. So that is the key things. That all sounds very scary, but mm. I do think there's some really um, good ways to kind of come around it.
0: Great. And I'd love in a little while through the panel, we'll explore things like the definition of duty of care and what our offices and how organisations do need to prepare themselves. But I think, you know, that's a great highlight overview. And I think why a lot of people are really keen to get to understand the nuts and bolts is, I guess, a little bit of the fear, um, particularly around, as you said, the industrial manslaughter and what this really means for me as a director or an owner or a manager of my business. So thanks for that introduction, Danielle. Next on our list is Adam Ritz, Safety Manager at Fremantle Ports. Adam has spent a lot of his working life in leadership positions in the Royal Australian Navy, the oil and gas industry and the maritime logistics industry, helping organisations understand and manage operational and work health and safety risks. Adam believes that everyone should strive to get the job done right and where risks to people, the environment, our products, services and equipment are considered holistically and managed using evidence-based systems and processes, not just a hunch or a knee-jerk reaction, then we actually start to, to really make a difference in this area. I guess, like me, experiencing high risk industries means that this is always top of mind, Adam. And I think the lessons learned in those sort of organisations are just so relevant and, um, in everyday um, management of business. Um, and a lot of the focus in those organisations is obviously on fostering a culture, you know, around thinking about risk and health and safety right down to the point that you know you can do a step back five by five when you're about to start painting in your home you know that's almost the length that it goes to isn't it the tools the systems they must be easy to access easy to understand easy to use and directly relevant to the user itself and I think step back five by five is probably one of those uh, traditional ones From your perspective, and we had a long chat about this the other day, in many ways you're feeling quite positive about the change. So I'm really keen to see what sections of the new um, WHS legislation you think have the potential to improve outcomes for businesses in WA.
2: Thanks very much. I'm, uh, yes, definitely a fan of the new Act, uh, having worked in organisations that operated nationally to finally be harmonised. There's a few sections that that I'm a fan of in particular. One is Section 17, which um, puts an obligation on on the organisation to eliminate uh, hazards as the first step, Section 17A. And then if, if it's not reasonably practical for you to eliminate the hazard, then you can go on to 17B and reduce it, reduce the risk so far as reasonably practical. So it's a very positive obligation that you have to eliminate hazards. And that just spells it out so much more clearly than, than the old legislation. So I think that's a great thing. It just focuses our attention on what our obligation is. I'm also a fan of the, the due diligence provisions for officers, Um, because culture, as you mentioned, is is a really important aspect of, of getting this right, the organisational culture where people are thinking about risks. And so the due diligence provisions, in my view, are basically a checklist to have the most senior people in the organisation focusing on things that will make a tangible difference to the health and safety outcomes of an organisation. And as we know, if the boss is focused on something, everybody else is likely to follow in their footsteps. So I see that as a really useful thing.
0: That's great, Adam. And again, I think, you know, some key areas are just around understanding those definitions of of what is a hazard... What are controls? How do you assess it? You know, some of that language is very new to a lot of particularly small to medium sized businesses that maybe aren't in those high risk areas and maybe it does put some of the focus on it. I guess, as Danielle said, it also requires that additional level of compliance and understanding. Otherwise, you are going to be quite significantly at risk, which is where some of that grey area and, I guess, concern comes from. So thank you for that. Um, finally, we have Brad Promitz, uh, Director of ASC Australian Safety Corporation and a, a big thank you to Kate who's in the room today for recommending um, Brad come on our panel today. We're very grateful for that, Kate. Thank you. Um, Brad has over 20 years' experience in safety management and safety critical control roles across Australia. This work has covered emergency services, transport, manufacturing, construction and the resource sector. Brad's roles have covered virtually all safety requirements from critical response, investigations, regulatory auditing and senior management of workplace safeties. You've done things from investigations involving fatalities um, right at the pointy end there through to prosecutions, Brad, um, as well as safety management system evaluations and developed and audited safety and quality in over 500 different audits. You've also provided advice to senior management and linked corporate safety with operational safety needs. Brad, in, in all of that experience, and particularly, I guess, from a, from an audit and a compliance perspective, if we look really at a very practical level around some of the things that Danielle and Adam have sort of introduced us to, what specific things would you be looking for at advising businesses to have in place to prepare themselves for the upcoming changes?
3: Uh, good morning, and thank you, Denisha, for having me today. Um, my advice for any business owner, manager, would be to make a start. There's no point perturbating or putting off improving, obviously, their safety processes and their safety profile. Um, And that reason is twofold. Uh, Number one, they're exposed if they have not identified all of the things that may harm a person, and that may be a worker or anybody else that could be impacted by their work. But also the fact that they need to actually remain competitive in a changing landscape that we're going to be seeing across WA. Um, with new shared responsibility models highlighted far more in WHS than in previous legislation, um, companies engaging another company are legally climbing into bed with them. Mm. Any outcomes on a work front where a worker is seriously injured or, or worse, um, they look at the entire work front, not just, oh, well, who was the subby on site that, mm. that caused this? No, it's a shared responsibility across all parties who have commissioned or taken part in those jobs. So uh, an owner or a manager not improving their safety processes and having the means to evidence those improvements will find themselves uh, in a difficult position with engaging or, or even maintaining or renewing contracts that they may have with existing clients.
0: I think that's a really, really interesting point. And certainly I think through the early 90s, particularly in resources, we did see a lot of that blame game of, you know, contractors being on site and, you know, we're the corporation who oh dear, bad contractor. Um, and there wasn't kind of that relationship that we're now seeing. But at the same token for a small organisation, that's a significant risk when you've got people working on site and you are, um, you know, even down to things like the chamber building where we're suddenly dealing with a whole lot of builders on site that we wouldn't normally in daily life. That does bring about a new set of risk assessments and a new set of, I guess, con- considerations. So, that's a really great point, Brad.
3: Absolutely. And especially you're, you're relying on them evidencing their technical knowledge and their approach to safety. And as the caretaker or commissioner of that work, you're hoping that it's it's right.
0: Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I'll just grab the mic yeah, say
1: yeah. I think um, um, one of the things I think is really important to realise, and I always have to read through the list because there's so many people now included in the list, is who who are workers now because yes. it, that's really broadened. And so basically a worker is a person who carries out work in any capacity for a person conducting a business or undertaking, which includes employee, contractor, subcontractor, employee or a contractor or a subcontractor, labour hire worker, outworker, apprentice or trainee, work experience student, volunteer, and a person of prescribed class, which is putting there to capture basically everybody else. <laughs> so I think it's really important so to So if you're paying anyone to do anything, yeah.
0: you are responsible yeah. for their health and or safety. Yeah, or not. Yeah. Not or not to pay anyone. Yeah, So
1: I think that's really, and that's really um, confronting and scary mm. for small businesses because in the past, I don't know, certainly with my clients, they used to think, oh, well, you know, that's what the subbie's doing and, you know, we don't need to worry about it. But now mm. it's absolutely key. Mm. Um, so I just think it's always useful just to see that I think that that's definition. really, really important. Mm. And
0: it applies to so many different businesses. You know, I'm mm. even thinking events businesses that call in an electrician you know how is everything tagged have they actually got all of that stuff done you know that's occurring daily and often mm. individuals running those sorts of businesses are just not across those sorts of yeah. things and Danielle I'd love to lead on to that because you were talking about um I guess sort of business owner's duty of care and a manager's duty of care yeah. can you cover yeah. off a little bit of those definitions first? yeah
1: so I mean I think I mean basically I think there's a couple of things to be aware of and again I like to read the duty of care out because it's so detailed um in that you've got the role of the business owner, which um, can be any incorporate or incorporated association or partnership that's conducting the business. Um, you've got the role of the officers, which is defined. The best way to think about officers is how it's defined um, in the Corporation Act, Act yeah. which is really meaning um, if you've got someone who is significantly in control of the business, and we're talking, you know, about Fremantle. Um, chamber and yeah. we look at board members and they can all fall into those categories. So what we're saying is, you know, basically if you've got some kind of significant control over the business or you're running the business, you have to meet the duty of care requirements. And the duty of care is provision and maintenance of work environment as far as reasonably practical, um, which we talked about, without risk to health and safety, provision and maintenance of safe plant and structures, provision and maintenance of safe systems of work, safe use, handling and storage of plant structures and substances, Um, This is a really interesting new one I find, Um, provision of adequate facilities for welfare at work of workers, um, um, which is a new one. Um, The provision of any information, training, instruction or supervision to protect workers from their risks from work and health and safety monitoring the health and safety of workers um, another new one maintaining any housing for a worker so that they are not exposed to risk of health and safety which is a really interesting wow. one if you're providing housing we do a lot of work with farms um, and it's yeah. really relevant um, and obviously consultation with workers on safety and health matters so understanding your duty of care is just absolutely key when you're looking at what you need to put in place to protect your business because it's where you fail to meet that duty of care where you can get
0: into trouble. And I read also that part of that is understanding what you need to do around duty of care and it is almost a layman's test, isn't it, around understanding what the risks are, being out of evidence that you've actually looked at those sorts yeah, of things. It, it's and all
1: about this reasonably being reasonably mm, practicable. Um, mm. and there's a whole definition in the Act around that, um, which leads down to, you know, common sense. Um, but I think, you know, what we talked about earlier is about, you know, hazards and understanding what your hazards are. And I think if you take it back to its simplest terms, what could go wrong? You know, what's something that could harm someone else and how do you put measures in place to manage that? You know, that's the way I like to always speak to my clients Mm. to just get them thinking about that I think is, you know, really, really important, bringing it back to
0: that. Absolutely. Adam, just from your perspective, and you're, you're new at, I guess, Fremantle Ports, um, relatively well, new in the chair. Yeah. When you go into a new organisation, and we're talking about hazards now, what do you look for? What are the sorts of some of the things that businesses should be doing as they kind of wander about their workplaces and think about these things?
2: That's a really good question and the, the port is, um, you know, the port's been around for 122 mm. years so in one sense you could think, wow, they should have identified all of their hazards <laughs> and, you know, have all this sorted but, but the world keeps, keeps moving on and changing and there's new equipment and processes and, and new people. So we've actually um, are having a, a program at the moment to try and improve our, our hazard awareness um, to, to recalibrate people's ability to, to spot the hazards mm. because we all become desensitised to things that we walk past every day. Um, you know, there might be a crack in the footpath outside the front of the building and you've been stepping over it for so long that you no, no longer perceive it as a hazard. So we're um, working on a program now to try and help people recognise those hazards that they might have been walking past for, for quite some time. And, and that's a difficult thing to do but it, it needs it needs effort and needs energy because just because you've been stepping over it every day for, you know, weeks, months or years doesn't mean that one morning you're going to be slightly distracted by that shiny car that drives past or, or thinking about the thing you've got to do when you get inside the building and suddenly you've tripped over and, mm. you know, hit your head on the corner of the step or something. So... Um, yeah, that's one of the first things that, that I've done at the port is to try and, and help people open their eyes. And there's a bunch of ways you can do that by, by having fresh eyes. Go and visit places. Take people to places that they don't normally go to and before they go there really encourage them to ask lots of questions. You know, why is that there? Is that always like that? How do you do this? Why do you do it that way? You know, all the usual how, when, what, why mm. type questions. Get some fresh eyes out there.
0: It's really important, isn't it, and we all have a bit of a responsibility also if something's taped off or if something is actually set aside for a reason that we don't just ignore it and just go straight through it. And on that, Brad, interested in some of the prosecutions and um, work that you've done investigating, you know, serious incidences, where is the line between, I guess, taking some personal responsibility for not, you know, being distracted by the shiny car and tripping over something or crossing a line that, you know, was clearly marked, do not go in here, versus, I guess, the duty of care that managers and because um, that's often what we hear when we hear safety. It's like, well, you know, how far do we have to spoon people that this is a staircase, you know, hang on to the railing. Where's the line in terms of that personal responsibility and the duty of care when you're investigating those sorts of things?
3: Interesting question. With with prosecutions, obviously looking at an incident, you tend to look at obviously the work front itself and then you work backwards up through management Um, there's always this focus on, oh, the worker's stuffed up.
2: Mm.
3: Well, the way that we would look at it was, was the worker ever provided any instructions or prescription around how that they were to either travel through an area or perform an activity? Just because they have harmed themselves does not mean they are automatically liable. Mm -hmm. Was risk assessment ever... Uh, performed were they ever informed they had to do risk assessment was a supervisor present was there procedures so you work up through multiple trains to find where the failures and there's multiple failures always within prosecutions uh where they've occurred and and who should have been watching the ball so Mm. to speak with that regard the um the other aspect too with with um what we've been talking about, the duty of care and due diligence, as they've both been raised, it's not up to a owner or manager to just go, oh, m- make sure you-, you do the job safe. That's, that's, that's great vision and motive, but you still have to have those resources and processes in place to be mm. effective. Um, with the inception of Section 27 of the WHS Act, which focuses on officers and duty holders, um, mm-hmm. The existing act, the OSH Act that we've had, it's nearing on 40 years, was very binary. It only identified employer and employees. And middle management enjoyed the luxury of anonymity throughout that legal process. So by bringing in that focus on liability for duty duty holders, those in middle management that typically have far more influence Mm. over how the work front is designed and set up and what products and and plant is purchased and used, as opposed to the CEO who doesn't have that line of sight or exists in a fog of war and is reliant on management giving them accurate information around how safety is within their departments or divisions, depending Mm. on the context of the business.
0: That's an interesting point. And on systems, Danielle, I might just get you to have the mic for a second Um, because I'm really intrigued obviously with your um, work in both HR and safety and the integration between those two things because we are talking about the management of people and keeping them safe plus a very strong I guess systems base particularly as Brad said because if you are going to get investigated you need to make sure you've got the right reporting systems in place that management and officers are getting the information that they need on a daily basis to be able to understand what those risks how do you look at an organisation implement that sort of So
1: I think the, you know, the most important thing to start with is a risk assessment. Uh, and in very simple terms, that's basically, you know, as an organisation, at looking at over a whole, what are the risks are and how we manage those risks. And so that's the way you kind of get, I, I believe, you get you kind of you a lot of your framework in terms of what your systems and processes needs to be about, mm-hmm. because you're looking at um, the areas which could cause harm. Um, so and then, of course, you need, you know, your relevant policies and procedures um, and your processes so again it's about not just having kind of general kind of high level um, documents that talk um, particularly about incident management but actually having processes that's for example when you induct someone that you're actually following a set of processes which includes both hr and safety you know so that they they, they are into the organization yes, the the right yeah. yeah so i think you need to start with the risk assessment um, from there you look at your you know policies your procedures and your key processes and then falls from that are your safe work practices Mm -hmm. and that comes out from your risk assessment. But the thing that I see so often is that they're either written too complicated um, so people don't understand them, or someone pays a whole lot of money for a system, but then they never actually use it. Mm. They and there's never, no buy They right? never yeah. actually train their people, mm. um, and so I believe um, that you just—it's the implementation and helping and supporting people do it—is um, just as important um, as the system itself. Because you can have a great system, but if you haven't used it, then it means nothing. Mm. Um, in terms of, I'm sure you both would agree, in terms of both, you know, if you have a critical incident.
0: Absolutely. I think that's really important. And I guess in a larger organisation, um, Adam, you're looking at how do you, I guess we talked to, you mentioned culture a little way. So you can have, as Danielle said, you know, a great system. You can bring your team in, you identify your risks. you look at the likelihood, you look at your consequences, you identify your controls, all of that's well and good. You've then got to roll it out through a large number of people. How do you go about that?
2: Yeah, that, in in my view... um, it needs good leadership and good management, particularly from those, those middle managers that, that are the people that actually, you know, largely do, do the, the work of supervising the people at the front line mm. uh, and making sure things happen. So, you know, just drawing on, on what both my colleagues this morning have said, you know, doing that risk assessment and understanding what you need to manage and how but then making sure that it actually happens, mm. um, that's the, the key. Um, you know, There have been lots of prosecutions that you can look at from over east where a company, someone like a Coles or a Woolworth, a big multinational or, or national organisation, they can demonstrate that they've done their risk assessment, they've done their inductions and in training, people have signed on a dotted line to say they understand and acknowledge the procedures. But then something has occurred and the, the regulator has gone in and discovered that people weren't actually following the written procedure. Mm, no, uh, and, and nobody's nobody no, yeah. no supervisor has actually noticed that or even if they've noticed it, they haven't done anything about it. And so this evidence that the company provides to say, see, we trained our workers, they've signed on the dotted line, the, the prosecutor goes, well, that's worthless mm. because your people weren't actually following the procedure. You know, who was looking over their shoulder occasionally to check that they were doing it the right way? Mm. Um, so you're, you're almost, you know, making sure you get the book thrown at you harder.
1: Yes, that's so true. One yeah. of the things I think is interesting, I often get a situation where I have clients say, oh, we we'll ring up, well, you know, they did the induction and we've got the process and systems and everything else and I've told them that they have to wear a helmet Um, but, you know, they choose not to wear a helmet. And I said, no, that's not good enough. The bottom Mm. line is if they're not wearing a helmet, you need to performance manage them from a HR perspective Mm. to say, okay, you're not wearing a helmet, that's the first written warning, and follow up on that. So it is being, I think, really proactive. And very vigilant. And I do, I really agree with what you're saying in that I think, um, as as full on as it is, the officer new parts of the officer in the act, it is really um making a lot of senior middle managers wake up mm. and actually take it a lot more seriously because they are they are liable. and um, which I do think I think it's harsh, but I also think it's a good thing at the same time. Mm. So Absolutely. I think it, yeah, so.
0: And you're so right because a lot of the the procedures where instances occur, if we take, for example, one of our hospitality businesses, you know, the risk of knives is clearly a high risk when you're chopping with very sharp knives every day and losing fingers and arms and limbs, you know, it could very easily happen that requires almost constant visual reminder as well because when people are doing it every day it just becomes habitual as well and unless someone is taking stepping back and observing every now and again and maybe checking that change and making those changes because they don't happen overnight you know these sort of awareness changes are certainly um are difficult to entrench in people's behaviors and So, Danielle, you mentioned that, you know, warnings can be a way of doing it. How else do you make sure that, I guess, the team is following through? Is it all punitive? No, of course not. No, you have to be passionate about Mm. it,
1: you know. And I think that's the thing is that um, your best asset are your people right that's the most important asset I don't care what business you have and I'm yet to meet a business and maybe I'm just met the right businesses that actually want to do harm to their people Mm. so I think it's about um, safety in a lot of ways has got a bit of a bad name people Mm. think it's boring and everything else and am I really going to trip
0: over the photocopier this way here we go (laughs)
1: Um, so I think it's about really um, culture is really key so in terms of inspiring culture I think inspiring change in terms of that middle um Mm. management Um, but i do also think there's a place where it's amazing that if you actually start getting a little bit serious in terms of following some correct disciplinary procedures it can make a real difference as well Mm. and then other people stand up because we're talking life and death so it is something that's um very very serious and it has to be you know absolutely has to be led from the top Mm. you know that is absolutely important Um, just taking it, you know, very seriously from a management point of view. But just you you don't – if you see something, you know, you have to call it. You have to address it.
0: And as you've said, there are, you know, also organisational benefits, although the act is is a little bit scary – if you are signing your contractors in and out, you know, there's benefits to knowing what time they're actually on site. Mm. You know, there's financial benefits in that. There's yes. financial right. benefits in making sure that induction's done properly and the work's done properly so you don't lose time on site. There's a, a really strong organisational and cultural benefit in your people knowing that you actually mm. care about them. So I think we also have to put it in that context yep. that there's some real business um, imperatives for getting this stuff right as well and well, thinking Well, just, about just the cost of injury mm. in itself.
1: Um, I think the other thing to be really aware of is just, and this is I'm seeing this increasingly, I'm sure you both are as well, is just psychological injury and just the, the issues around stress um, and how people are responding yeah. to stress and everything and how we deal with mental health in the workplace. That's something that's becoming a really key issue, which has huge effects on productivity and your mm. profitability mm. Um, so being really proactive
0: and is that rate. covered under the act yeah it's well? always been covered under yeah. the act, but
1: it's mentioned um, more specifically, more specifically. Yeah.
0: yeah um just talking about diversity of organizations i'd be interested um, adam in your view from what is the difference between i guess some of the dealing with this on a large organizational level and say dealing with it in smaller to medium-sized businesses is there a difference or is the process the same
2: I think the process is the same, but like many things we do, it can be scaled up or down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether whether you're dealing with the the, the finances and the filing uh, or, or some other act aspect of running an organisation, um, most things are scalable. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love the uh, analogy um, that was explained to me when I first got into safety um, some time ago now... Um, it was the analogy called the Joe's garage model. So, so Joe owns his service station and he's got two people working for him. He's got a mechanic in the workshop and he's got, a, got an assistant running the, the, the checkout in the shop. But Joe has visibility of everything that happens in his organisation. He knows when, you know, there's not enough Mars bars on the shelf and he knows when there's not enough, you know, oil out in the workshop. Um, and, and he knows all of the clients. Now, it's not, if that grows to now Joe owns 20 service stations uh, around town, he won't have visibility of, of what's on every shelf and you know, every client, but, but he can still make sure that the right kind of information gets, gets to him. So the system to provide that information does, needs to be scalable. Um, the hard bit is, is making sure the people understand what information he needs to do his job well. So, yeah, the system's not really the hard part. The hard part is, is helping people understand what the senior people need to know mm-hmm. so that they don't lose sight. And so I see my role in, in the port now and the other places I've worked is to help the, the board of directors, the, the senior executives think really deeply about what information they need to know about the safety management in the organisation so that they can fulfil their duty of care.
0: And how are some of the ways that that information can be passed up? I mean, is it starting a team meeting with a quick, has anything happened today? Is it formal reporting on a monthly basis? What are some of the tools that organisations need to have in place around that reporting?
2: Certainly we need to know about about incidents and and hazards. But to be more proactive, um, I think it goes back to doing, understanding the risk assessments and Mm -hmm. continuing to review and update those um, so you, you're trying to look forward you're trying to prevent the incident from mm-hmm. occurring um, so we sometimes talk about leading and lagging indicators um, and though there's a lot of science that tells us that um, that's a bit of a, a bit of a cycle um, but we still need to be looking at the things that are likely to give us the best chance of success mm-hmm. so looking into the future um, so your hazards the procedures you're using are they being used are they as effective as you you um, like to think they are. So um, the information you need um, comes from all areas, but typically having conversations with the people that do the work to understand the issues that concern them is one of the best tools I find.
0: Because often on, particularly on sites, it's like everybody always knows before it happens, don't they? And I'm sure all of you have have experienced that where they're all like, oh, yeah, well, that was just an instant waiting to happen almost. So it's getting into that conversation, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm really interested from each one of you and I might start down the panel and come down, but if you can maybe give us a couple of examples where of the sorts of hazards you may have seen in specific industries that could be big hitters that maybe are now captured under the Act. So maybe if we take sort of marine or retail hospitality or whatever, Brad, just a couple of examples maybe that you could just talk through for our audience. I'd
3: I'd actually like to go up a level. I think Mm. with, and this is from an investigation perspective, I think one of the most consistent or, or the worst hazard that we would identify through investigation process was hypocrisy, where companies had put together systems, they'd written procedures, they'd pushed them down through the workplace, but then they didn't actually change anything or provide additional time to meet those new controls. They still maintained the same amount of pressure for time to complete work and it was an unwritten rule that, no, you don't follow the procedure because you won't get it finished in time. So, therefore, the workers basically suffer from that hypocrisy and, and are unheard in their workplace. If they raise things, yeah, yeah, yep, no, we'll take that under advisement and the workers know nothing will happen. So, they switch off themselves they no longer look at hazards, they no longer carry any form of safety culture themselves through the business and they almost resign to the fact, well, nothing's going to happen, it's always going to be this way. And therefore all effort stops at both worker level and management level. And that brings in a whole raft of negligence throughout the whole business at that point.
0: And in particular, I guess, if if hazards are being raised and no controls or care is actually being evidenced in that raising that would definitely bring about I would imagine that sort of hypocrisy of we've got all this stuff on paper but does it really matter
3: absolutely and I get ra- I get asked often look I've, I've I've raised stuff with corporate or I've raised stuff with management or I've raised stuff with my supervisor depending on who the person is but you know, what, what what else can I do and my advice is record it send that person if you've had a conversation with someone and you've raised something send them a brief dot point email as discussed, um, forklift is dodgy or we've got issues with the surface on that floor in that area um, and just hit send. You've got a paper trail, and you've met due diligence on your behalf. It also pushes uh, the person to act on that because they realise, okay, it's been documented now. I can't just blow it off and ignore it. Mm.
0: Great. Um, Any specific industry example that you can think of that may be different from one sector to another in terms of the way under the new act these things come up?
3: Uh, All industries suffer from it. Manufacturing suffers from timeframes and completion of quotas and output of products and services, especially if they're on consignment. Building, exactly the same where you've got multiple contractors on site. Project management's occurred to get everyone fitted into the project schedule and then one of the tradies doesn't show because of they're working on another project or wet weather and it creates a domino effect. So that increases the pressure on everyone to finish the job. And as, as um, Danielle was saying before, companies will bring in subbies and subbies of them and they'll bring in labour hire or a mate will come and work for the day. So a builder's running a site like... Who's he? Oh, he's working for me. I've never even met the guy. He hasn't been inducted. How long's he been here? Oh, two weeks? I've, I've breached the act by not identifying or, or providing that worker with information about how the site runs, what hazards, what the risk assessment process is, and therefore I'm, I'm exposed. So it does create these systemic issues with, with how you govern a work area and how you manage it accordingly especially with people that aren't part of your organisation.
0: That's really good. And Danielle, from your perspective, obviously you work from farms through to through to oh, every organisation. Is, um,
1: I think the, the common... Look,
0: I mean, I can talk this
1: certain standard things with... Far, well, the two things that worry me the most, um, and this is those that are more likely to happen in most businesses, okay, because mm. most businesses is um, the fatigue issues. Yeah. I think fatigue is a massive issue. Um, I think particularly um, we are going through a bit of a boom at the moment across a lot of industries that I'm seeing. I mean, obviously we see it particularly in farms, but I think people working ridiculous hours, not having breaks, people lying about their breaks, some of the things that I'm seeing that are, had it are happening. Um, so that's a real risk. Um, and also um, I'm seeing, like I mentioned before, psychological um incidents like where people are, you know, are people are fatigued in the office or they're quiet, um, they seem depressed, um, you know, they're starting to take time off, excessive sick leave. So I'm, we are seeing in from a, particularly from a HR perspective as well, far more e- incidences of psychological injury that grow across all businesses. Mm-hmm. So they're the things that um, I'm particularly been aware of too, that I think are quite common in all all businesses. Absolutely. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point.
1: Um, and I think we really have to look at this whole um, excessive work hours, whether it be like legal firms to farms to construction sites, um you know, and the increase in technology and the not switching off so people being able to con- being contacted at any time, checking the emails after work, this is really causing areas that concerns me. And, you know, psychological injury is the fastest growing injury across Australia at the moment and it has the greatest pay out in terms of workers' comp, so it's something we have to be really aware of. It's a really,
0: really good point and Mm -hmm. even as you're talking now, I think, you know, I was only having a conversation with my staff a week ago because in the the old world that I grew up in, you know... you had to network after hours. You had to do all of your work after hours. You ran around like a crazy person because that mm. was the culture of the organisation. And we do operate in a new world now and getting a bit of an understanding of that balance. And I think the friction between an old way of working mm. and, and possibly a newer way of working is, is difficult and yeah. it's difficult to give up on that. And as an organisation that needs people networking at events after work, we're very keen yeah. on people working quite late into the evening to make sure that we do those things. So yeah. absolutely. It's that balance. Absolutely. Um, We've got some great folk sitting in the chairs and in the room today. Um, Did anyone have any questions that you would like to put to the panel? Mark or Natasha?
2: So, um, I think we possibly covered it, but in some other countries, um, clients have a responsibility. So, if
1: we are doing work here in the chamber, I work in the construction industry. So, um, under other legislation, I had the duty to inform my client that they had certain duties and they had to discharge it themselves and I could guide them a little bit. I'm only an engineer, I'm not a safety guy, but um, I wasn't going to go into detail, but I was able to warn them to um, get the right information and manage their processes. Is there such provision in the Act?
2: Yeah, great question and I think, there's two sections of the Act that uh, that go to this. There's Section 16, which talks about what um, uh, there can be more than one duty holder for an activity. Um, and then section 46 uh, talks about the obligation when there's more than one duty holder for those two or more duty holders to um, consult, cooperate and collaborate to make sure that the risks are properly managed. So yeah, there's a there's a firm obligation and so that that a great example is, is construction. So you know the, the client and the, the contractor, they need to um, have a look initially and probably look at, What duties 100% belong to the client? What duties 100% belong to the contractor? And and where are the ones where they're, they're shared, where they have an overlap? And they're the ones they really need to focus on collaborating, make sure they've swapped information and can walk away comfortable that they know who is going to do what. But then just because you know that the contractor is going to do something or the client, you still, as the other party, have an obligation to check to do that supervision bit, just as you would supervising your employee when you've told them to wear their hard hat or to use the knife a certain way, you check. Between the two organisations, you still have an obligation to check.
4: Ms um, so I run the Fremantle markets. Now, they will often send contractors over to repair something in the building. Now, they won't notify us that these contractors can't... Yeah. So we've stopped them before when they're about to drill into asbestos or something because nobody's given them an induction. So who does that fall on? Because we're not even notified. I don't know they're going to be in.
0: Brad, do you want to take that one? Sure. <laughs> well, how would you investigate that, shall we say?
3: As, as, as we'll just um, Adam was eloquently putting, there's shared responsibility models that exist for anything. As soon as you commission anyone to do any form of work, all impacted parties should be identified, must be identified and then consulted. For example, Denisha, you get a Sparky to come in and do some work. You'd be having a conversation with a company saying, okay, well, what do you physically need to do while you're here? Does that pose any risk to us? Are we going to be inhaling anything or are you going to have to switch off power? Um,
0: and if we are, how are our tenants going to be affected, which is exactly what Natasha yes.
3: about. Yes, it you know, becomes when a we ripple effect. The
4: contractor, that's fine. We do that with our tenants. Yes. But it doesn't always happen. You might have lodged something a couple of months later, they're, they're about to do it. Need
3: to, get it they do.
4: Yeah. So, but who would it fall on then if this got investigated? Would it fall back on the. S- Both and if then you've, that we if you've even stopped that I don't understand.
3: If you have stopped them from working you've that's fine. You've you've met your due diligence. They've failed to meet theirs if they have not informed you and obviously an activity is being undertaken that poses risk to persons within that area.
4: Because the market's are open for traders set up and so that people can just access without me knowing, I might yes. be at my desk. I might not. Who know? I mean, we've caught electricians unapproved in the building before as well. I've now realised that I'm now going to have a sign at the entrance, sign in or oh, sign yeah. in. But sure. we all live in a world where we know they're going to ignore that and walk on in. How, well, how far can you go? I mean, I can't stand at the entrance. <laughs> <laughs> there is,
3: we, we have thrown a couple like of sections.
0: <laughs> I I know. Right. Yeah,
3: we've thrown a couple of sections of the Act around. Section 27 does hone in on the provision of information in a timely manner. Any duty holder must have the ability to receive as well as pass on information regarding safety in an effective and timely manner. In other words, they have to tell you in advance if they're going to have sparkies come through and start drilling into asbestos. They have to also be contactable and they have to also be able to contact the people that are exposed. So they need to be able to contact you in advance. Yeah.
0: It's a really interesting point. Like I was even thinking we've got an event coming up at Fremantle Ports at B Shed. Adam. And, you know, even our responsibility as we're bringing guests onto that site, we have a duty to make sure that they are looked after. Obviously, Fremantle Ports have a significant duty to make sure if any of our trades are putting in tables or lighting, that they know what's coming. And I think it's actually breaking it down to that level, isn't it? It's thinking about who are the parties that are going to be impacted and where does the duty of care lie? And as much as we have a responsibility to inform. It, it does go both ways, and I think what Natasha is saying is so true. Because you know, even in this building, we find there's people working on it, and we're at a micro level. Never mind the markets where there's you know your traders, tenants, can, you know, yes, plus staff, plus staff, right Yeah, I'm
4: think I will do this and remind them of their duty of care. Yeah.
0: Um, Guys, just let's make sure we use the mic. And I'll just, for those that maybe just didn't hear Danielle, Danielle was just advising putting it in writing. And as Brad said earlier, I think that's really important, whether it's an email, whether it's a letter, and particularly with the new act coming up, it's a chance to say, look, we've reviewed our practices, one of the hazards that we've highlighted is people accessing site without authority to be on site. We'd like to put these new controls in place. We need four days notice before they are coming site or one, whatever it might be. We need them to sign in. You need to induct them to say this is where the sign in book is and having that process.
2: Yeah. And I wouldn't hesitate to do what you've done in the past to, to stop a contractor or a tradie from doing work until you've been through whatever your processes are to make sure they're inducted and you've checked that it's all going to be okay, they're not going to drill into asbestos or something, don't hesitate to do that. When you do it, send the email back to Fremantle Council and the the tradies boss to say, you know, not appropriate, don't do this again. That way, if... The worst happens down the track where somebody came in and does some does some work and causes a problem. Then and you get investigated, you will be able to demonstrate to the regulator that you have made a reasonable effort, mm. because the reasonable person test does apply when it gets to prosecution and court. Okay. And so, if you they you can demonstrate that you've made a reasonable effort to manage this. You can't be standing at the door all the time but you've done what a reasonable person would do, then you're, you're probably going to be okay.
4: Because mm. we've also got it on the other end. You've got tenants. Now, we have ladders and tools and things like that. Now, if the door's left open to the workshop, they're in there borrowing a drill or, you know, can we borrow a ladder? Now, they're working from heights, et cetera, et cetera. Like mm. Now, do we just say it's just easier? What it seems to me is it's easy to say we don't learn anything. What's Because that's kind of not fair and reasonable in a, like, just a working with people kind of environment but in in protecting yourself the easiest way because I'll never be able to manage 150 people plus their staff plus their husbands wives whatever kids when they need to grow the ladder and the drill so it's just easier isn't it no no lending that's right
0: yeah and I think it is also that you know questioning and then I remember my first day at the chamber. Almost, it must have been second week. We had three men on a ladder up in the toilet for two days, and I just went, "Why are you here?" And they're like, "Oh, we're rewiring." I said, "One, no one's given authority to do that work. Two, no one's signed in. Three, who's paying for this?" So it does. You know, you actually have to be asking those questions all the time because people will do crazy stuff.
2: Just. Thinking about this, um, where there's these overlapping responsibilities, one of the the tools that I've used before, uh, from the oil and gas industry over over east the onshore oil and gas industry in Queensland, South Australia, they do these things that are called work party interaction tables. Ooh, so it's basically a matrix. It's quite a
0: sexy title. There. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, but it's basically a matrix that on one one. AXIS has all the organisations that are going to be working on the site on a given day and on the other AXIS the various activities and then you can show, you know, who's in charge of the activity but who else is going to be impacted, Um, whether they're going to have their trucks driving through it or whether their people are going to be affected by the dust created um, or, you know, won't be able to hear because of the noise that somebody else is making. And so it just is a relatively simple um, way of depicting you know, what the issues are and who needs to be involved in managing them. Yes, it's
4: often with, the, with market stall holders, you will turn your back and something will go up. Now, it's not approved, you know, and this is how markets run, you know, so we're never going to change mm. this culture. But if it's not approved and they've, they're a business owner and they've done it illegally, wouldn't that then the duty of care fall on their – would that still involve us?
2: My view. I'll defer to my my esteemed the colleagues least. here. But my view, my view is the courts are quite possibly going to see it as a shared responsibility. Yeah. Uh, it's about it's about the court will try and look at what was your ability to control or influence or, or influence that space.
1: So you walk past something that was deemed you know could have been a hazard.
4: Well, you and just not, accepted not. it. You, you know when yeah. they plug something in, like they're meant to have everything tagged. Obviously, that's a mission in itself ensuring all tags are up to date because you turn your back the next week there's new things in you can't be expected to invest but part in, of that's in, in that like culture research. isn't it I, and i, I again, think again
2: sorry yeah. i don't i don't think that if it got to a prosecution they would expect you to to see and control everything yeah. but you would need to demonstrate that you'd done everything reasonably practical. So when you have demonstrate that you have spotted things that were going wrong in the past, and you have communicated with that stallholder or whatever, so that you've got a track record of saying, "Well, when I spot things, I act. I don't right. just ignore them." Um, and you know, and I think that the prosecutor and a judge would agree that no, you can't see everything. There will be things that have happened that you've just not even noticed until after the event. But even with those, if you can demonstrate that, yes, I spoke to them and told them not to do that again, that you can demonstrate that you've made a reasonable effort. Mm.
0: And I think the the points, Natasha, make, whilst they're sort of, I guess, site-specific, they are relevant in terms of, I guess, the fear around the act and that ability With health and safety because we are managing people it is like herding cats and it's very difficult and that is why I guess Mm -hmm. they have gone it's taken 40 years (laughs) for us to get a new act that covers all of these things and how we do it and I think that reasonable test that Danielle mentioned is so important as is the culture and the communication the identification you know it's almost having a comms plan with every kind of activity that you do who are your stakeholders who might get hurt here who else is responsible and have we had a conversation? With them, and I think what Natasha's raised is so crucially important for all businesses to say, we really just need to understand this. And are we bringing our teams together on a regular basis? Are we bringing our stallholders together on a regular basis? Checking in and letting them know why it's important, because why it's important is none of them want Natasha to go to jail. I'm quite sure, um, and that's part of. Um, what well, we're sort of trying to do in that shared responsibility—would that be yeah. fair?
2: Yeah, I think so. It, it, you know, and, and I keep using the words about doing what is reasonable and, and passing that reasonable person test. If you ever got caught, obviously you want to avoid getting to court in the first place. Yes. Um, but uh, doing doing what's what's reasonable—that if somebody independent looked at it and they thought, yeah, you've probably done as much as you you can, because
4: you the, can't—they're not staff, so you can't no. make them come to a meeting. And they won't come to show up if we said we're and having a safety meeting.
2: <laughs> in my view, that would go to the reasonable test, test as well. That if you can explain that to, you know, a potential work safe inspector or someone, then then they might go, Yeah, well, there's only so much you can do in that situation.
0: Yeah. And and, you know. And look. having things, signs visible, yeah. having right. you know all that information around. You know, that if that is is clear even if it's not face to face that there are written and sign controls and those sorts of things.
2: If I can just change tack for a mm, moment, there's to. another yeah, section of the of this new act that spells something out very clear. And it's section 272, um, which is the no contracting out. And, and this is where um, people for many years in many countries have tried to contract out their responsibility for safety. They've written the contract to the, the builder or the construction company and said, you know, you're responsible for everything that happens inside that fence. You know, don't don't talk to us. This is section 272, the Act trumps any contract that you might try and write. You can have the best contract in the world, but the Act will trump it and the court will basically tear up your contract and start from scratch and go look at who was responsible for what was going on there. So I think that's a really important section.
0: And on that, yeah, go for that. And then I wanted to chat about insurance on a similar line. but Brad. And
2: and to piggyback
3: off that Adam there's the same existing with um your own safety responsibilities in a business I was completing an audit with a a, a client and and the CEO said to me at the end he goes look Brad is there a a form that I can download from WorkSafe where I transfer (laughs) responsibilities to the um chief financial officer I'm going to Tahiti for two weeks I won't be here so I'm going to make him the responsible person in my absence? The answer is no, there's no form.
0: So even if we're in Tahiti, Brad, we're responsible. It doesn't exist
3: (laughs) (laughs) because you can't formally transfer your safety responsibilities to any other party. You can delegate tasks for them to fulfil on your behalf, but you still hold the liability for that safety. So you can commission a, a manager, a supervisor, Someone to do assessments and feed you the information about the outcome of how that went, absolutely, but you still hold it. And it doesn't matter, time of day, geographical location, you are still liable. Otherwise, every company just set up their head office in, well, I was going to say India, but that's probably not a great <laughs> choice at the moment. Um, you'd set up overseas and, and absolve yourself of legal liability. Mm.
0: And on that, I guess the big thing that I'm curious about is insurance because for years that was the, the way out. Well, you know, it doesn't matter what my decision is or whether I'm aware of the controls because even if we get done, the insurance will take care of those penalties. Just you can't. You can't. <laughs> can, can, particularly,
1: um, you know, around the and everything like that. I think
0: Adam's passing that to you to be able to read out something
2: for, for us. My, is for yeah. my notes on the insurance.
0: Um, can I, can I just, add to that? Sorry. just make sure you've got the mic. Yes, you
3: certainly can, Adam. Um, breaches of the OSH Act are not civil. A lot of people think they are a civil matter. They're actually criminal proceedings. So, obviously, if you're in breach and you're found guilty, um, it's it's a criminal record that obviously the the guilty person would then hold as a result of
2: of being liable. <laughs> The good thing about that, it means the legal test is a slightly higher bar. Okay. Um, it's got to be beyond reasonable doubt rather than on the balance of probabilities. So that's that's a good thing.
0: There's one uh, up in all of this. We've uh-huh. suddenly got to a very scary part. I can feel myself yeah. audibly breathing in as well.
2: But just getting to your point about the, the prohibition against insurance and indemnities, so Section 272A, um, so, a person must not offer or into, into, enter into insurance, indemnity agreement, be indemnified or agree to be indemnified, pay to another person or receive from another person insurance or indemnity payment. So, it's now, or well, it will be when this, this section comes into force, illegal for an insurance company even to offer insurance to indemnify against a fine or, um, a, yeah, fine under the Act. So, um,
0: what does, and I was just going to ask. Sorry, Danielle, one other question, and then I'll let you go on to that. But it just, just struck me as you were talking, then Adam, and as a, um, I guess a sort of an executive within and across has been across a number of boards and not for profits over the years. Where does that sit in terms of, I guess, ability to attract directors and, and maintain them on your boards given now this penalty?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's significant. And, I mean, we were going to talk, we are mm. going to talk about the implications for the Fremantle Chamber Board. But I don't know if, I hope that this might be ending on a little bit negative, but I just know that all the questions I get are around industrial manslaughter yeah. and the other penalties. Do you want me to just touch yeah. on them? Because I think people will otherwise think we haven't
0: covered... The um, most important yeah. bit. <laughs> so by skirting around it, yeah, Danielle. That's yeah, why I think yeah. we've already heightened some very scary topics just yeah. to the end here and so I think let's look,
1: go into that. Uh, most people are worried about industrial manslaughter. That's what you're hearing all the time. And that's when a worker dies or is injured and later dies while carrying out the work, um, that the person conducting the business, which is the business owner or a senior officer's conduct, causes the death, so they have to cause the death. The conduct constitutes a failure to comply with this duty of care Um, and the person um, engages in the conduct knowing it is likely to cause death and disregards the likelihood. So to be honest, for my clients, I always say I'm not hugely concerned about industrial manslaughter because it is a very high bar. The maximum penalty is 20 years and a fine of um, $5 The ones that I worry about are the category one, two and threes. Um, so this is basically when people fail to comply with the duty of care. So category one is when the business owner or the officer fails to comply with their health and safety and the failure causes death or serious harm. Um, so that's there's no intent there. And that's five years imprisonment and a fine of 680000 Category two is when um, the business owner or officer fails to comply with their health and duty of care and exposes the risk um to death so they don't actually have to die or have injury but they're exposing it and there's penalties between 170,000 and 1.8 million and then category three I mean and there are a lot more offences throughout the act but these are just the key ones I think um is when the business owner or officer fails to comply with the health and safety so no implications just they've they're found to fail their health and safety fines between 55000 and 570000 So the one that worries me the most on behalf of my clients is that category one. It's that someone, you know, fails to meet their duty of care and someone dies and there's no intent, not so much the industrial manslaughter. Mm. And that, you know, and that's putting a really dark side on things, just at the end of Mm. the session talking about it. But everyone wants to know about that. And Mm. I think it just brings it home really, really real that we want to really make sure that we are, you know, doing the right things um, for our businesses, obviously for the people we want
0: to protect and keep safe. Um, And, look, no one wants to go to jail. That's right. And that comes right back to where we started around that hazard identification. Mm. So what we're really looking for, particularly to address those, is understand what those categories are, then look through our organisations and work out potentially what hazards or what risks we have, that may fall into those categories and make sure that controls are in place. Is that Yeah, a- and put a
1: system in place. So I understand you you know, very simply, understand what could go wrong, what are the hazards, how do we manage those hazards? One way we manage those hazards is through having a good system in place. That's one way, but then we have to make sure that we're actually doing it and training. Another way is through culture, it's through acting. Um, and yeah, and if you can demonstrate all that and generally doing the right thing then you're going to be in a much better position than if you uh, had someone say to me, I went to a function recently and um, this guy started talking to me and he said, oh, what do you do? And I said, oh, I own a HR and safety business. I don't believe in HR and safety. We don't have any safety things. We we just don't believe in it. We don't believe in any of these laws or any of this act. And I said, oh, that'll be fine. Why not until something goes wrong and you end up in jail? (laughs) (laughs) That's right.
0: (laughs) And I always break it down on a really minute level to me being about a young eighteen-year-old, and I was actually had been, you know, working in industries like this for a long time, so I knew my step back five by five. And I was sanding a old wardrobe with an electric sander, and my dad said, "Be careful with that." I went, "Yeah, yeah, got it." And then I picked it up and went to blow the sand off the sander, and basically sanded my face. Oh, my and I still, I can still hear dad going. Bloody told you to be careful with that thing. That's often what we're really coming down to. So as individuals, we have a responsibility to step back five by five and maybe work out really logically that putting an electric sander whilst it's on close to your face is not a good idea. But also that we follow the instructions that have been given and that they've been given for a really good reason. And I think when that resistance comes, it's because we don't understand that there is a reason behind this stuff. And there's a lot of research that shows why hazards happen. What happens if you're working at heights and you fall off a ladder? You know, we know what's going to happen, so therefore those things are actually really important for us as individuals. Just very quickly before we finish, Kel, anything online We got Yes, there
4: is. It's a question about non-operational directors
0: and just how they
4: get comfortable with uh, high risk operations when it's not their specialty. Are
1: they directors like on a board kind of? Yeah. 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 I mean, I look, I did a whole lot of looking into this the other day for Mm. our talk that I'm doing for the Fremantle Chamber just for the board, um, I don't think... You, I mean, I think it's a shared... i mean, jump in, both of you, if you think I'm saying the wrong thing, but it, you can't get away from the fact that if you're a director and you're a non-operational director, you're still um, usually in a board context making key decisions that affect the organisation so you're still going to be liable. So the only thing you can really do is get comfortable that what the organisation you're aboard of is doing the right thing. Do they have a risk assessment? You know, what controls do they have in, in place? Do they have a safety management system? You have to be across all of that. Would you, would you yeah. agree? Yeah. Mm.
2: One of the things we've done, uh, we're doing at the Port and I've done with organisations over, over east is make sure that the, the, the non-operational directors of the organisation get information in their their board packs at their meetings that is not just the the incident statistics but exactly as you've said that they they get information that says we have got a safety management system this is how it's intended to work this is how it's actually working at the moment you know either you know fabulously or it you know it needs a tune up or it needs to be thrown out and buy a new one um whatever it might be that they get well, the, the due diligence test, Section 27, uh, you know, spells out the things that they should be looking at, um, gets some advice on how to actually do those things and there's plenty of it out there and these guys are probably gurus at it.
1: Mm. Slightly. And
2: if I may add to that uh,
3: horrible, scary Section 27 again, whilst um, within our legal system it's, uh, rever- uh, the onus of proof is on prosecution. It's up to the prosecution to prove you have committed an offence. Um, section 27 is probably the closest you're going to get to reverse onus of proof. It's up to the actual person to prove to a government regulator that they have actually met those six measurables within that section and carried out their duty of care um, in a previous life. Um, a government regulator has the ability to enter any premises that is used for conducting businesses any time and commence assessment, including interview those in positions of management. So under Section 27, WorkSafe could potentially show up at any business, conduct a physical assessment, but also interview each of the people that it perceives to be duty holders in that business, those that have an influence over how safety is implemented and maintained. And they can measure them Against Section 27 of the Act to determine have they met that duty yeah. of care, so it's forcing companies to look at this not from a oh if something goes wrong we'll fix it as opposed to we can't afford for something to go wrong, so we need to actually be proactive and and prevent it from happening in the first place, which is the aim of this new Act. <laughs> go ahead, Just
2: uh, you mentioned that if Worksafe walks in and interviews you. A really interesting, to me, a bit of a nerd on this, if WorkSafe does walk in and they start having a conversation, anything you say to them can be used as evidence to prosecute you. If you ask them, is this a formal interview, and they give you the warning when they have to read out a really long, boring section of the act, anything you say cannot be used as evidence against you. It can be used as evidence against someone else in the organisation or your subcontractor or whatever, but it can't be used against you personally. That said, they'll go and interview your colleague and <laughs> use what they said against you, but, but you are protected. Mm. So, so think carefully before you speak to them in any great detail, thinking that being honest is, is the best policy and most useful stop and think about it and say, no, I'd I'd like you to give me the warning and do this formally. That way, anything you say is protected and can't be used against you.
0: Some great topics that I think we could all burrow down for quite a while. I think the homework is to all go and read section 27 in some detail and make sure that we are across um, it. Read the the
2: whole thing. It's probably the best plain English version of the safety legislation that many, much of the world has seen.
0: That's a great idea and I think we might even circulate that as a link when we circulate the podcast um, today or tomorrow when we actually circulate it in the chamber weekly. Um, The last thing I think Danielle you really struck me when you were saying it's particularly for non-operational board members is the ability to ask the right questions as well and to find the information and understanding the act from that perspective so that each board meeting you are asking the right questions and if the information isn't there is another way, I guess, of of mitigating that risk. Um, Absolutely. Anything else? Wonderful. Well, thank you all very, very, very much. Um, It's been a scary yet fascinating conversation. Um, I am so impressed, as I said earlier, with the technical expertise that we have on um, the panel today. And from the bottom of my heart and from the businesses out there, thank you for sharing your incredible knowledge with us. Um, It's very rare to have um, the opportunity to have such leading experts be so willing to to share with businesses across the board. And I think there was relevance for all of our different industries there. So thank you all very, very much. We do have a small gift for you uh, to take away with you today, Um, but thank you very much. So the podcast will go live on uh, Monday um, but or will be shared through, um, but we're also obviously live on Facebook recording right now. So to all our listeners out there, thank you very much as well and thank you, Chris, for making sure we get through it and sound okay so everyone can hear us.